0: Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Love the show this week. We'll be speaking with Steve Lippin in a few minutes, a senior partner at Brunswick Group, for those of you who don't know. Brunswick is frequently hired by large companies when they're ready to do M&A to deal with both reporters who are seeking to break news and investors who want information about a pending deal. Uh, Steve's firm often helps draft news releases and at least attempts to help journalists with facts for stories. Uh, in many ways, I suppose Steve is a journalist's adversary because he's a gatekeeper for information that we're trying to break and publish. Steve started his career covering m and for The Wall Street Journal, and so we'll speak with him about his current job and his prior life as a reporter uh, and how those two things uh, have sort of mesh uh, and, and maybe changed over the years and also some of the craziest deals he's been a part of from uh, a MA PR perspective. But first, it's time for our weekly segment, What's the Big Deal? Uh, and in terms of dollar value, this week's big deal actually isn't really much of a big deal. It's less than $200 million. But in terms of name recognition, it's one of the biggest we've featured. Univision, known for, really, it's Spanish-language TV, probably best known for that, is buying a large minority stake said to be about 40% in The Onion, the satirical media group, Way back in 2014, myself and Lucas Shaw, my colleague, broke that The Onion was looking for a buyer or a financial investor. And now here we are in 2016 when a deal is announced and joining us to discuss is Bloomberg media reporter Jerry Smith. Hi, Jerry. Hey, Ox. Okay, Jerry. So my first question simply is why? Why Univision?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you look at Univision and The Onion, just on paper, it seems like they're very, two very different companies. Uh, but from Univision's perspective, they are really trying to reach a younger audience. Um, they're co-owners of Fusion, which is a, a, you know, a Latino millennial-focused website. They last year acquired The Root, which is a website uh, aimed at uh, African-American millennials. So, Univision's really trying to reach a much younger audience than, uh, than they currently have right now.
0: So, The Onion is more than just The Onion satirical website, but before we jump into this, Jared, I have to ask you, what are your favorite Onion headlines?
1: Yeah, The, the Onion, is, is, I mean, some of the classics that come to mind are, um, you know, the headline CIA discovers that it's been using black highlighters all these years. Uh,
0: <laughs> I love that. That is fantastic. Um,
1: you know, right after uh, Obama was elected, you know, Black Man Gets Worst Job in America was a one that a lot of people really totally. uh, remember. Um you know, there, there's just been so many over the years, but it's... Uh, Their
0: 9-11 issue, I remember, was, was uh, quite popular, like Woman Who Doesn't Know What Else to Do Bakes Cake or something like that. That's <laughs> I remember it exactly. My favorite is I Am So Starving versus I Am So Starving, the point-counterpoint <laughs> with the like teenage girl versus the African refugee. Uh, I, I, I recommend you all. Check that one out. What's always,
1: what's always funny too is is you get some media outlets, especially outside the U.S., that don't really know what the Onion is, and they'll just you know take the, their headlines as fact and, and republish them, and they don't realize that it's supposed to be satire. So
0: that's a great transition into Univision is really known for its content, its Spanish language content. So I mean, that was the first thing when I heard about this deal. I thought, so is the Onion changing? I mean, are they going to become more Spanish leaning, or is this purely? A financial investment.
1: It, Univision says it's purely financial. They say that uh, the onion is, is going to be still operate independently and that it's not going to change, uh, for now, at least not going to change anything that it does. One of the interesting things, there's sort of like two bigger trends happening right now. One is this idea that old traditional media companies, uh, Univision, for example, um, NBC just made big investments in BuzzFeed and Vox last year. Hearst and Disney have made investments in Vice. There's this big trend going on where big media companies are investing in some of these digital buzzy startups. and the main reason is they just they need younger younger audiences. I mean some of the the older TV networks and mean average age is is in the 60s some of these um, networks. so they really you know you're seeing a bigger trend of old media investing in new media. And then also comedy is seen as a really ripe way to, to reach younger people. Um, NBC just came out last year with this um, comedy-focused streaming site called CISO. So there is kind of this interesting idea that Univision seems to be realizing that you know not only do they need to reach younger viewers, uh, but they also might be able to do that by through comedy.
0: And explain to me how this works. In other words, does Univ by buying a steak in the Onion, does, does Univision think that they can somehow marry Univision content with the Onion's media groups? The Onion, by the way, owns like the AV Club and Clickhole and. They own like a video studio in addition to just The Onion. Or is it that when it comes to like selling advertising, now they have another vehicle that reaches younger audiences that they can package in with the rest of their stuff?
1: Yeah, man, I think the latter. They haven't really said much. Univision hasn't said much about their plans so far. But certainly, they'll be able to use um, The Onion as a way for advertising. Similar to how like uh, Condé Nast used Reddit as a way, sort of like a digital outlet that they could sell advertising on. So, they haven't really talked much about their plans. But, but certainly, that's one thing they could do.
0: Do we know of any other uh, digital media company that has sort of publicly said, Hey, look, we're for sale. I remember when we broke the story about the onion, we also broke stories about Funny or Die. And I believe Crackle was the other site that was looking for either buyers or investment.
1: Yeah, I mean, most recently, there's been some reports about Mashable possibly being for sale, which um, has been out there for a while. And what is Mashable? Well, that's an excellent question. And I think that's actually um, a really interesting point to make. You know, Mashable is sort of, it's considered to be, or considers itself to be sort of a tech focused millennial website, similar to how um, Univision, which has a stake in Fusion, is Fusion says, you know, we're reaching this sort of Latino millennial audience. And the problem is, is, is when you have the way the digital media landscape now, there's so many websites. If you just sort of have like a, a broad, not very specific audience that you say you're trying to reach – Uh, I think investors kind of get confused and a little concerned about the fact, well, BuzzFeed is huge, Vice has a huge audience, so either you're really, really big or you're really, really niche and focused. And if you're somewhere in between and you sort of have a vague mission or a vague audience, um, I think some investors are like, what are you guys trying to do here?
0: Is there another part of why these big, large legacy media companies are investing in these digital media sites, simply that there's some sort of option value on it? In other words, why don't we throw a couple hundred million dollars at this? It's not a huge chunk of our overall profit. And yet, maybe if you know we get overtaken over time, now we have a stake in this thing?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think what you're seeing is that the big traditional media companies, they want to have these stakes so they can learn from these digital startups. I mean, Univision has said that they have the option to buy, to buy the onion outright if they want to. But for the most part, and you look at NBC with BuzzFeed, um, you know they're trying to learn as much as they can from these new media sites. Uh, I think by having a, a large enough stake in some of these sites, they also have the option of, of potentially blocking other people from acquiring the sites as well. So it's a strategic investment. They try to learn as much as they can from these sites. Um, and eventually, if they want to, they, they could potentially acquire them outright.
0: Jerry Smith, Bloomberg media reporter, talking about Univision acquiring a large minority stake in The Onion. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so let's bring in Steve Lippin, senior partner at Brunswick Group. And prior to that, a reporter and editor with The Wall Street Journal. Also want to reintroduce a frequent guest on the podcast, Bloomberg's global managing editor of deals, Jeff McCracken. Hi, Jeff. Hello there. And hi, Steve. Thanks for joining us.
2: Alex, thanks for having
0: me. So uh, I want to give listeners a full disclosure here before we start about sort of what I do and what Steve does and what Jeff does and how they are related. As a reporter at Bloomberg, I frequently deal with Brunswick Group because Brunswick is hired by companies that are involved in live M&A, and they hire Brunswick in order to deal with reporters to field my calls and to give me particular information, oftentimes uh, be sort of giving me the why behind deals, but also because they are hired by these companies frequently before deals are public, they often have information uh, that I don't know about yet that I'm trying to break and publish. So, in that sense, uh, Brunswick sort of works as both a friend and a foe to reporters. Uh, and Steve knows this very well because. He has done both. So my first question for you, Steve, is why did you switch from reporting to sort of the other side?
2: Well, I had too many kids, and I lived on the Upper West Side. So uh, you (laughs) can only uh, carry a Wall Street Journal salary so long. Um, But I was fascinated and still am fascinated by the deal business. And I consider myself a student of the deal business and a student of finance. Um, I mean, I was so boring in college, I did my college thesis on um, federal bank deregulation and deposit insurance. Um, And, you know, worked uh, at various trade publications. Uh, My dream job when I graduated was to work at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, My father read the journal growing up. My father got the journal in the mail every day. And that's how the journal was delivered. And uh, loved every day of my journalism career and of my Wall Street Journal career. And I was really um, getting to the point where I was very curious about what life would be like on the inside, looking out, helping companies craft their story, as opposed to being on the outside, peering into the keyhole, trying to determine what big deals were going on, and, of course, trying to break them, much like you and Jeff do, uh, before they're announced. And um, I made my name covering covering M&A, and I decided when I was at the Wall Street Journal that I was going to work every Sunday.
0: And what has surprised you the most? In other words, what is the thing you didn't know as a reporter that you have come to learn over the past 15 or so years?
2: Well, I would say a few things. Uh, You know, firstly, the the thing about working uh, as a reporter is you sort of never have complete information. That doesn't mean your story is wrong. It just means that you write what you know— but you never have the full story. And what what's exciting and what I really enjoy is actually being on the inside and really understanding what's going on, having a full story. We, we are insiders, of course, the same way as legal counsel and investment banks are. And so we we get the full story. In the early years, I thought that um, we'd walk in and I would be told what the full story is. In fact, part of our job, of course, is to help create the story. And so you know, part of it was understanding that actually there's a a lot of work to do helping companies, you know, with their corporate story. And I had naively assumed that it was really just about sort of disseminating it. Steve, what
3: percentage of the full story gets out? And and maybe that depends on on the deal or on the company. But, you know, you you get in there and you find out what's going on. How much of that gets out to the public at the end or when the the deal is announced?
2: I mean, I would say the preponderance of of, of, of the story gets out, but the whole point in our role, right, is helping companies create that narrative, like, how are we going to position this transaction, or whether it's an IPO, whether it's an M&A deal, if it's hostile, if it's friendly, if there's a bear hug, how are we going to position it? How are we going to position it to investors, to media, employees, government, and other stakeholders? Um, so I would say that, um, you know, most of the time your job is to try to get the whole story out. But, of course, you're never going to get the whole story because there are always nuances. There are social issues. There are all sorts of, of tensions that go on behind the scenes as, as you would expect. And so, look, the whole story effectively comes out when a company files its proxy, right? But, but even there, it's how it's positioned, so again, part of our job is to help companies decide what the most important salient facts are and then really hit on hit on those hit on those facts and those themes. What percentage of deals you get hired
3: on actually come to fruition
2: yeah that's a really good question so um, the banks and law firms tend to get hired earlier on in the process, and I would say that the communications firms, Brunswick and our competitors you know tend to get hired when there's a higher likelihood of, um, of, of the deal happening and of success. So certainly we have transactions that um, we work on and, and, and fall apart for whatever reason, but um, there's a cadence and there's a, a life cycle to a deal. And I think that companies and their advisors, you know, rightly so, pick the moment when they think there's a higher likelihood of a transaction happening, and then they want to build out the rest of the team. That could be a communications firm, it could be a proxy solicitation firm, you know, and, and others. So by the time we get hired, I would say that, you know, it's definitely north of 50-50, um, you know, maybe sort of 75% odds of, it, of a transaction being announced.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your competitors since you brought it up. I think many of the listeners probably don't really know this because a lot of this stuff is sort of inside baseball. So what happens is companies typically hire a a firm like Brunswick if they're of a certain size to deal with a lot of the M&A communication. And there are other firms that you compete with for business, such as Sard Verbinin, Abernathy McGregor, Joel Frank. Uh, So I'm curious from your perspective, Steve, what's the sell? In other words... To us, in many ways, it seems like you guys sort of do the same thing. But how do you guys get business? How does Brunswick stand out over your competitors to get hired?
2: Well, look, we have we have uh, many very very good competitors. It's a small community, um, and we are, uh, you know, we're, we're often working alongside. They may maybe represent the target, and we represent the bidder, or vice versa. So we have some very strong competitors. Um, you know, the way we distinguish ourselves is we're a partnership. And uh, in the U.S., we probably have, you know, 30 partners, something like that. Globally, 120 partners. One of the ways we distinguish ourselves is, for instance, having a very strong public affairs practice in D.C. Um, we're global. So we're in London, Hong Kong, Beijing, Sao Paulo, Berlin, Frankfurt, Brussels. So for international cross-border transactions, um, none of our competitors, none of the competitors that you named have, you know, have global offices and none that, I, that I'm aware of. Um, and that, I think, makes a, makes a big difference. And I guess, lastly, I would say that um, uh, having a journalist background and a background in M&A reporting, I think, helps in terms of understanding how, you know, an Alex Sherman and a Jeff McCracken are going to approach a situation what
3: happens how does your job change when when alex or myself or the wall street journal or somebody is successful and breaks one of your big deals whether that is you know the pfizer transaction last year or other ones <clears throat> how does your job change and i'm curious who gets angrier over the leak is it is it the target is it the buyer is it the PR, the PR people like yourself. I'm just curious. You know where where do you see and, the most anger? And who's anger? blamed
0: to Steve Ford? I'm curious about that.
2: Well, you we usually blame Bloomberg for all that, so that's easy. No, um, but I mean, who is blamed for the information we get? Who are you blaming? No, I know what you're saying. I'm yeah. making I'm, that was sort of a right. joke. You mean um, we would just make it up? <laughs> uh, I've I've done the job. I know that you're not making it up. That doesn't mean you're right either, right?
0: Um, I, I would say for Bloomberg
2: stories, that is not right, but maybe for other. We've, we've all written stories that we probably regret. It's a very competitive job, and much more competitive now than when I when I had the beat. The job is much more complicated um, when deals leak, but leaks are part of the the rhythm of the business, and um, we do everything we can, of course, uh, to. Um, uh, to avoid leaks, but it, it it happens, and in some markets, you know, like for instance the UK, you're required to put out a statement. You can't no comment. Whereas in the US, under the US rules, you know you could, you know you could no comment. And so, depending on what jurisdiction you're in, will dictate what the potential response is. Of course, it makes it more complicated. Stocks move, uh, employees get anxious. Um, it, it, it may accelerate a transaction. It may kill a transaction. Um, and so it creates a, a dynamic um, where you don't know where it's going to lead. You know, we've, we've obviously all been involved in transactions that, that leak. And, you know, while there may be some finger pointing, it's, it's less about the finger pointing and more about, okay, how is this going to impact the ability to get to the finish line? Or I should say the starting line. Because really, the announcement of a deal is the starting line. That's when the gun goes off, and the close is the finish line. So let me it, pick,
0: let me let me piggyback on what Jeff was saying. Is there a particular deal in your mind where the the press sort of made things get a bit out of control or haywire? Is there something in your mind that you worked on in the past where this one sort of really went off the rails from what the planned script was from when you were hired?
2: I mean. Um... It's a good question, uh, and I'll have to just give it some quick thought. I would say that, um, again, there's absolutely been transactions that have been killed because of leaks. Okay, there's no question about it. There are transactions that are accelerated, as I said. Um,
3: I was thinking Pfizer-AstraZeneca might have been one of those deals that got more challenging because of leaks.
2: Yeah, that, 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 that's certainly an interesting one. You know, I mean, God, I mean, going back to, to uh, you know, Tyco during its crisis days when um, CNBC reported that, um, that Tyco was going to sell CIT, and I think they came out with a statement saying they weren't. And all sorts of things and dynamics could happen once a leak takes place. And something could be true at that moment, and two hours later could be false, or at least not accurate. I shouldn't say false, not, not accurate. You know, and again, as I said, I mean, transactions, sometimes, of course, the the leak is unintentional, and sometimes the leak is intentional, right? Or you put a bear hug out, and that sets in motion, you know, all sorts of actions. You don't know where it's going to lead. So, um, you know... When I think of leaks, I think what you're talking about is sort of unintentional stories that that break, you know, on Bloomberg and with your competitors. But I also view a leak is, you know, do we want to intentionally, you know, put out a letter um, to set things in motion, and and that's absolutely part of the dynamics in a transaction you know, whether something is is public or not. Um, I'm, I'm sort of avoiding naming names because, A, I'm having a hard time remembering <laughs> what you know, and, and B, I, I don't want to point fingers, but, but for sure, um, when Bloomberg breaks a story on a transaction that's not public, it absolutely changes the dynamic and, um, you know, it creates, it, it, it could, particularly if the terms haven't been set yet, it, it creates real, you know, issues on the part of the dealmakers trying to get a deal done. But as I said, that is part of the dynamics of, of m and and there's no getting around it. There'll, there'll never be a time when there aren't leaks. It just, it happened.
0: Has the heyday of M&A passed us?
2: God, that's depressing. Um, the heyday of M&A certainly hasn't passed us, but w- maybe I'd rephrase it, which is, has the heyday of swashbuckling, larger-than-life investment bankers passed us, and has the, has Wall Street become sort of more institutional, and you know not allowing these personalities to to, to to really, you know, thrive? And I'd say that that's you know that that may be true. In the '70s, '80s, and '90s, it was it was still very much the early years of of M and A and um, they, were, they were writing the book. They were writing the rule book. And, you know, Bruce Wasserstein, he lived and died by the press, and uh, the press built him up. And then when things went south in 1990, 89, 90, he walked into the Wall Street Journal one day and said, if you don't mind, I would just like not to be covered anymore. And, of course, this was a man whose adroit a use of the press helped um not maybe not just helped win deals but 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 certainly helped his own persona so you probably don't have i think there's an institutional pull away from sort of strong personalities
3: yeah if anything the personalities now are the activist shareholders probably those are the people that are willing That's to step a great out point. you know so if okay. you're Bill Ackman or Dan Loeb or Carl Icahn it it behooves you and supports your your case or your investment to get out there and be very public and play with the media in a way that isn't necessarily helpful if I'm an M&A banker or a
2: lawyer. But, I mean, in the 80s, you had swashbuckling. At the time, we called them corporate raiders, okay? Sir James Goldsmith, Maxwell. I mean, you had also larger-than-life figures, and so it was a little bit of Clash of the Titans. And I think it's a good point where the the... The loud personalities now um, are without question the activists, and they're, again, very adroit, I don't want to say manipulators, I'm just going to say users of the press. And they're great at amplifying their message, right, without question. Today, how many letters went out today between David Deinhorn and Carl Icahn? And so um, uh, it's 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 a drumbeat, and, and they are – um, they are much more public personalities than the financial and legal advisors, having said that, of course, there are great personalities in this field that 's what I love about it. Um, there's still some amazing, amazing personalities um, who epitomize the the best of Wall Street, who care so deeply about their clients that their clients and their friends sort of merge into you know merge into one and so um, uh, what I would say is there's an institutional uh, pressure from the large firms not to create the personalities that we had, let's say, 20 years ago.
0: And none of those personalities are bigger than Steve Lippin, senior partner at Brunswick Group. Steve, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Much appreciated. A very interesting look uh, at M&A from the PR perspective. And of course, Jeff McCracken, uh, our global managing editor of deals, uh, thanks, as
2: always, for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thank you very much. Very much appreciate it.
0: So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are in the boardrooms doing deals real-time. But until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes or Google Play or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And also take a minute to rate and review the show, please, while you're there. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. Steve Lippen, who you just heard, at Steven Lippen. That's Steven spelled S-T-E-V-E-N. Jerry Smith uh, at Jerry F. Smith and Jeff McCracken. At JC McCracken. See you next week.
3: We are proud of our new and growing suite of original podcasts, all designed to help you navigate the complexities of business, the financial markets, and the global economy. Odd Lots, a deep dive into the intersection of markets, economics, and finance with Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway. And Benchmark, with Dan Moss, Tory Stilwell and Aki Ito, an informative, jargon-free look at the inner workings of the global economy. All three shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts for Android, Bloomberg.com and the Bloomberg Terminal. Check them out and subscribe today.